Welcome to Photography Insights, the show that goes behind the scenes with people from the photography industry. So it's that time again, and it's now episode 98. After recently speaking with Stu McKenzie, I thought it'd be great to have a female combat photographer too. So a little bit of research later, and I came across a wonderful story about a lady called Stacey Persall, who had served for the US and was also doing a fabulous veterans project. After speaking with Stacey, it's quite clear she had a wonderful sense of humour, as you will hear. She is a person who's not let her disabilities from her servitude affect her, and along with her trusty assistant and Charlie, her service dog, now world famous, she applies her trade as a photographer. One of the main reasons you should listen is talking is when she talks about her amazing veterans project, which involves her travelling to every state in the USA. Now this is no mean feat for someone like Stacy, so listen carefully as she talks about this. So in this one, we talk a little about Charlie and Dolly Parton, service dogs, female veterans, combat injuries and PTSD, grey days, combat camera requirements. Military jokes, gear and meals. New Zealand travel dreams. Flying with dogs. Holsters and injuries. Photojournalism. Gear or gun. Being an Ilford master. And maintaining brand loyalty but integrity. And of course Stacey is subjected to the usual balmy questions. So find out why you shouldn't watch horror films. Please do listen out for, don't forget to check out the links. Uh, You'll be able to find Stacey's website, Instagram and her own podcast channel there too. Obviously at this stage I would like to thank the friends of the show as always, which is Dave at FilmDev. And this week I had some more work uh, done by them and we've seen some uh, amazing images come back. And I can't thank them highly enough. Um, They've even done up to um, 100 meg files uh, for shooting media format, which I'm sure you'll agree is pretty amazing. And it just takes forever to download, and I'm going to run out of space, so I'm going to have to stop shooting uh, without a doubt. And obviously I'd like to thank Pete at Static Age for his continued support. And I'd like to announce one new member. So, drum roll, please. Yes, we have the wonderful Steve at Chroma Camera. Um, he's uh, coming on board with us as a friend of the show as well. So, anyone who's into large format, please do give her, um, his website a try. He originally started a Kickstarter project, uh, I think it was um, last year. And for a new, very reasonable price, large format com camera made out of modern materials. And he's now doing this full time. Um, he's an absolute master engineer. He's coming up with all sorts of ideas um, for mixing old and new digital with analog. Um, he's always tinkering away at things um, secretly. Uh, but also he shows a lot. Um, socially as well about the things he's trying to do 
Um, he's very much um, open to any suggestions. You can get him online. And he's just um, on about expanding as well. So he's looking at taking another engineer on. So very positive signs. So welcome on board, Steve. Uh, we'll look forward to uh, talking about you more. But for now, um, let's move you on to the music and await our lovely guest, Stacey. And welcome to the show, Stacey. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, our listeners uh, didn't actually get to see, but you've got two little friends with you as well, haven't you? I do. Right right <laughs> at my feet. They're, they're curled up um, being as, ever so quiet. Well, Charlie's not. He's kind of humming at me. But I do have a corgi, his little sidekick that's sitting right next to him, and his name is pickles that's very cool um it's quite funny because we've watched quite a lot of films with um dogs in especially a famous corgi um and they have this very different character in the film so i wondered if how, how well it was portrayed in real life are you talking about the cartoon about the corgis yes well i watched it yeah and um uh, it was it was really cute, but definitely mm. a children's film. Oh, yes. um, you've, got, you've got two daughters. I'm sure they would enjoy it. Yes. Um, I liked it for the, the sheer nostalgia of, of having Corgis featured in a cartoon. But um, <laughs> Pickles is, um, he is a crazy, almost Tasmanian little devil who, who keeps Charlie on his toes, oh, ironically. Oh. Yep. That must be so hard for Charlie. And so, so how long have you had Charlie now? Charlie is my service dog, and we got paired yeah. together in November of 2017. Okay. So coming, th coming this fall, we'll have been together three years. Wow. That's a, so it's a lovely thing, isn't it? I mean, could you imagine of having Charlie prior? I don't think so. Hmm. As... Um, a military veteran, I wasn't really re prepared to admit that I had problems enough to warrant <laughs> needing a service dog. I wasn't ready to admit it to myself, let alone actually put it down on an application and apply for a dog for help. Mm. It, it, it was definitely a process for me to come around to that idea. And then once I had got my mind wrapped around needing a service dog and finally asking for help, mm. it was 18 months before I was awarded Charlie. I tell wow. you what, though, Charlie is pretty special. Here in the United States, we have several television program, news programs in the morning, mm -hmm. and the national broadcast, uh, NBC, has a program called The Today Show, and Charlie was yeah. raised, on, on, raised and trained on set. And for anybody who's listening around the world, do a quick Google search, Charlie, Today Show, and you'll see all you want when he was a puppy and, and through his training. It's pretty incredible. Oh, wow, that's amazing bit of history then, isn't it? Yeah. He met so many celebrities too. I was actually kind of jealous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that's so lucky, isn't it? Yeah. There's a picture Maybe. of him when he was probably eight weeks old, clutched in the arms of Dolly Parton. It's pretty great. Um, well, maybe we should be interviewing Charlie then. I know. He, <laughs> he's the superstar for sure. Oh, that's amazing story, isn't it? I mean, have you always had dogs then, or is this like an, a new thing entirely to you? I've had dogs my whole life. Okay. And 
it's been unique because Charlie is considered a medical implement uh, mm -hmm. through the Americans with Disabilities Act. And he's, he's treated out in public the same you would treat somebody who's, say, in a wheelchair or has a walker or um, a, a, a cane or anything like that. Okay. Whereas we, we treat our dogs like pets normally. And, and mm. my whole life, I've been with dogs as pets. It was definitely different having to sh switch my mind to the idea that, you know, it's not time to play tug of war or throw the ball. Charlie's right. there to work. I see. Yeah, that mm -hmm. must be very different. Yeah, it yeah. is very different. And it's different for people in public as well because the natural human response is to want to go squidge on those cheeks, but mm. we're not supposed to because they're working. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. Um, we tend to associate them in the UK um, with um, blind people. Um, that sort mm -hmm. of disability. Guide dogs. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's pretty common over here. I don't mm -hmm. know if I've actually seen a service dog in that sense. They're becoming more and more... I don't want to say common because that's not quite yeah. there yeah. yet, but in the U S it's definitely more prevalent and mm -hmm. there are service dogs being trained for a number of tasks from hearing impaired people. Like I, I Charlie is trained on some tasks because of my hearing impairment and he'll <laughs> alert me if there's a knock at the door, if my phone's ringing or if somebody's trying to talk to me like behind me and I can't hear them, he'll say, Hey, somebody's trying to address uh, you. Okay. Um, and Charlie does uh, seizure support. So I also have um, seizure activity because of my traumatic brain injury from combat. And Charlie does a lot of tasks to mitigate the seizures from happening. But also, if I were to have a seizure, he's there to support me through it and then to get help if I need it afterwards. Right. Honestly. I was going to say, I mean, obviously, um, we all know you had a disability or disabilities um, from being a veteran and obviously that's a, a lovely thing you did for your country you know everyone adores people like yourself uh, it's an amazing thing you know we sit at home uh, away from all dangers and you know it's caused you problems hasn't it in life so it, it's a big thing to um, move towards having this support though um, and I think the things it can do. So, I mean, what would have happened, for instance, then, if you went not Charlie? Well, prior to Charlie, I was leaning heavily on, for one, my husband, uh -huh. who who was my primary care provider during that, that time, those um, between 2008 and then 2017. So that was a, a long spell, almost yeah. 10 years, where my husband was you know, constantly supporting me through that time. And when I was out doing photography, even with the Veterans Portrait Project on the road, I was definitely, definitely leaning on my photographic assistance for help. Wow. Um, probably more than any one assistant would ever think was in the repertoire of assisting a, a photographer. <laughs> um, but I, I honestly did not let them in on a lot of what was going on because I hadn't I hadn't really come to grips with it myself Yeah. between, um, between post-traumatic stress and anxiety and sleepless nights and, um, 
and then waking up the next day, or if I was lucky to, to sleep at all because of insomnia, mm. then I would have, um, you know, neck pain and, and, and I have right arm radiculopathy, which doesn't allow me to grip my camera for prolonged periods of time. And when I was in a headspace that the, the doctors had told me all the things I couldn't do and I was trying to overcome them, mm-hmm. struggling through it, but finding ways to modify my behaviors while behind the camera in order to continue doing it. Sadly, though, it, it was also compounding the injuries, compounding the stress, and then the oh, seizure okay. started. So, well, I mean, everything everything happens when it when it happens you know it just took me that long to come around to it that's all god it's a it's a big thing and you know it's nice that you can be open about it now because i imagine that wasn't the case in um early parts of your life sort of thing would it (laughs) no well imagine though as a as a woman combat photographer there weren't a lot of ladies around and then i was deployed to go with infantry units which are all male units or they were until recently (laughs) or recently the average individual were looking for reasons why women should not be in combat roles and i never wanted to give anybody any um ammunition we'll use a military term (laughs) i didn't want to give anybody ammunition to use against women And part of that ideology was to mask any pain I was in, mask any trouble that I was going through because, again, I didn't see myself as weak because of my gender. I was human being experiencing things Mm -hmm. that humans really shouldn't, i.e. war and things like that. And it was no different for the men, but the men, I believe, had the opportunity to exchange ideas and feelings and emotions in in the way that men do in those environments. <laughs> um, whereas I had to internalize it and mm. that too did a lot of damage over the long run as well. I carried that ideology over into my civilian life and it just kept perpetuating this mm-hmm. toxic, um, this, this toxic emotion and toxic pain inside of me, which never allowed me to, have a space state, a safe space to begin the healing process. Anyway, that's a long-winded version, but there you go. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. So what's, um, I mean, obviously you've talked about a lot of different problems there. So what are the main things you think that affect you as a photographer? Oh, you mean presently or in the past? Um, let's say pass and have you overcome some of these then? Um, to be clear, po- combat related post-traumatic stress, or I think post-traumatic stress period, whether you were held at gunpoint or you were the victim of rape or, or anything violent, hmm. um, that sticks with you for life. Yeah. But... I will say, and for me, um, this has been my experience, that you can begin to heal from it and learn to not necessarily run from it all the time, but Mm -hmm. also embrace what that means in your new normal. 
we get yeah. so accustomed to what we used to do. And instead of realizing that every day we are evolving and we're changing and traumatic events like my, for myself, it was combat mm -hmm. traumatic events like that will always be in my history. And, and the ramifications of that will always be part of who I am. And just knowing what my triggers are and how I can work through them more expeditiously to get out of the, on the other side. Yeah. I hope that makes sense. No, it does totally. Absolutely. Because I think it's the same in any walks of life that um, there are some fundamental things in your life that can affect you. Um, I don't know how honest I've been in the past with listeners. Uh, I lost my mother. Uh, I was 20 five-ish so to me you know i'm 45 now so that's 20 years ago i can barely remember taking part in anything with my mother because the memories slowly fade away you remember the good um, as much as you can because you can't change anything mm -hmm. so why remember the past um uh, some things of the past that maybe weren't so memorable or hurt you sort of thing. Um, so, honestly, I was a wreck. Um, it's affected me for life. It's affected my brother. It affected my father. Uh, it split all our family up. Uh, you know, it was devastating. Um, but it's made me change. I'm a hell of a lot stronger now. You know, I had to become... Um, I had to do a lot of things... Um, and then I lost my father, I've lost my grandma, I've lost loads of people. So I've been the head of the house, you know, I had to organise my own father's funeral. That was no fun. Uh, stuff like that shouldn't happen. Um, I've got no one older than me now. So um, I think you can learn from them, though. Uh, I learned to adapt. Uh, I went through that places and... Um, had issues, um, but it's a slow climb back. Uh, and the words you said, new normal, that's exactly it. Because you're not going to be who you were before. How can you be? No, a life change is just that. Yes. It's, it's a change for life. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and who you become is the important thing and what mm -hmm. you do and what you learn. And like you say, by being open about these things only helps everybody and that's something I've embraced yeah I will say this one one thing that had to happen for me I had a lot of physical injuries because of the nature of my combat trauma uh -huh. but really the physical aspect of healing could not fully take effect or even begin until I actually addressed the the mental trauma that went on, the emotional trauma. So mm -hmm. these two are inextricably linked. And yes. for anybody out there who is listening, I say that your mental health is as important, if not more important than your physical health and your, your emotional well-being. So please, um, for any of you who may be struggling right now, I've been in your shoes don't give up on yourself and and in fact i encourage you to to get the help that you need and it and don't be afraid to ask somebody for help yeah no thanks Stacey. yeah i think it's that important uh, in fact we 
I did a show um, a little while ago. I had a couple of people on, and we talked about uh, mental health. So I did an entire um, podcast on it. Um, people from different walks of life, totally different uh, experiences. And um, it's so hard to listen to people talk about the negative things that's happened to them. Um, and one thing that happened because of it was you start thinking, oh, my experiences were nothing. Like mm-hmm. mine were nothing compared to yours. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and then you have to realise it's not about levels of how bad things were um because feelings are not like that are they? um no they're they are not and you cannot compare your your trauma or your experience in life to another individual's yeah. each and every individual has their individual threshold and their individual experiences if the most traumatic event that happened to you in your life was a traumatic car accident or on the flip side of the coin you were in a bank robbery or a, a train collision. Uh-huh. Each one of those are an escalation of what we would consider even even more trauma. But yeah. that that does not diminish the individual who was in that traumatic car accident. Hmm. That still was very very traumatic for them because that was their life experience. So I don't. I, I've been through hell and back, but hmm. I do not compare my traumas with any other individuals. Nor do I diminish the pain that it is inflicted on them. So that goes um, back to anybody again, who's listening. (laughs) Um, Do not degrade or compare your traumas or your emotions um, based solely on what you know of others. Hmm. Just make sure that you're staying healthy for you. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. That's very kind. Mental health is everything. everything. And for me, um, it's the same thing with photography. I mean, I've set this um, Facebook group up, um, I think it was the beginning of this year, because all I've seen online so far was groups of how pretty my photos are. (laughs) Um, You know, there's there's a few unique places and niches here and there. And I thought, well, I want to do something different. I want to set up a group for people that um, maybe just want to put something out there uh, and talk to people. And we had a few people that uh, had problems with um, relationships and stuff. And they just come on for a, a quick chat. Um, and I'll say, you know, whatever is therapy to you is fine. So if you want to come on and talk about stuff, that's fine. If therapy is, um, oh, I took this photo today, let's all just say that's really nice. I'm glad you're getting out. Um, and some people are listeners. So you'll never hear them commenting or liking. Um, and I had some lovely comments uh, about that. And I thought, you know, it, it's one tiny little thing that helps. And if it's one person, that's great, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yes. And it's a start. That's the main thing for me, to be honest. Um, because I, I've noticed... Um, when I used to do a bit of street photography, that my mood really affected my shooting. Mm-hmm. So I've learned to embrace that now. And like, um, if you want to do, uh, I love my architecture. I'll wait for a nice day. Um, I shoot film. I want lots of light. There's no point going out when it's grey. 
Um, and I'll go often quite by myself and I'll walk for miles. I'll find a building, I'll shoot it, I'll walk off. I'm literally bang, 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 uh, and I'm off. Because uh, uh, I know what I want. I can see the building from so far away. I know the angle I want. Um, and I'm so focused and I have a fantastic time. If someone approaches me and has a quick chat, fantastic. Hmm. So I was going to make a joke in there that you you were saying that you don't like to shoot on gray days. I'm like, don't you live in the UK? <laughs> isn't, isn't nearly every day of the year gray? Uh, yeah, yeah. You've caught me out there. Yeah, so, so I don't go out very often. There you go. <laughs> once a year. Yeah, once a year. Yeah, once a year photographer. Oh, that's an idea, isn't it? Yeah, there's a blog. Um, <laughs> no, it's definitely probably more gray. Um, but summer, uh, I mean, like today, uh, we've had blue skies. I think we had blue skies for like three months. It was just mm. been amazing. Like first part of COVID, it was just hot every single day. We were so lucky we could go outside in the garden um, and then start doing a little bit more. So mm -hmm. that was summer. Um, I mean, obviously, we need to delve into a little bit of your photography that you've done um, from your career as well. Sure. <laughs> um, I mean, I had to I had to look at one of the images that I really liked. Um, now, I'm assuming it's a picture you've taken of someone else. I'm guessing it's a female on a, probably an aircraft carrier, but probably a pilot wearing a mask down, and they're looking down at a camera sort of on their hip like looking and their visors down mm -hmm. that's now. a picture of me oh it is of you okay yep we were doing high altitude low oxygen flights okay. dropping cargo um so we were we were training to go to do airdrops over afghanistan ah so i did all the training but i never got to go to afghanistan which you know, when you train, you that's what ultimately what, what you want to do. But yeah, but yeah, that picture was of of me training for that particular mission. I mean, for me, it's so strange to see. That's like a normal pose as a photographer, isn't it? You're just having a quick look at your camera. But you're in a pilot's outfit. It's like uh -huh. what? Yeah. Okay. So in combat camera. Getting into combat camera was tough enough because you've got to have a portfolio and evaluation okay. reports and be physically fit and then and actually have be accepted because many people apply. Uh, Once you get in, there is e an even smaller echelon of photographers that become aerial qualified. So we become air crew qualified and wear the flight suit and the helmet. And, and, and when we go up in the air, yeah. we are considered air crew and mission essential for that particular aircraft. I like okay. to tell people that as an aerial photographer, I was more like a stewardess, which is a joke. That's a joke. <laughs> um, no. Exits are here and, and mm. here, and if you follow the lighting strip, just make mm. sure that you keep your arms crossed as you exit the aircraft. No, I typically tell people, hey, listen, don't worry about where the chutes are because uh, if we go down, it's, you're not going to be fast enough to get to them. So just just say a prayer, and it'll be over before you know it. <laughs> I like your humor. It's macabre, I know. Sorry. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. It, it's it's funny because um, 
I interviewed uh, a British veteran as well, uh, very, very recently. Uh, very, very similar, um, been around the world, just like yourself. Um, and he was saying about the inner joke between uh, the different forces. So he's an army mm-hmm. um, combat photographer, and he's got a friend who is uh, flight. Mm-hmm. So he was saying, you know, obviously we were in the real forces. They were just flying these airplane things. That's just straight jealousy because, <laughs> uh, you know, I was in the Air Force. I was an Air Force combat photographer, and people mm-hmm. called us the chair force as if we never left the chairs chair in, chair. in our air-conditioned office. And I tell people, listen, as a combat photographer, I may have been paid by the Air Force, but I actually physically wore an Army uniform on my last deployment. So mm-hmm. I, I had to pee in hasty scraped holes in the ground and... Yeah you know, pull up a tire if I had to go do more than that. Um, and I, I slept on the ground with all the, with all the, the Joes and you know, so they can, they can call all the jokes they want. It's totally (laughs) fine. I I am, I I am not sore about it because when I came home, I went to an air force base and we had really great meals and top notch technology, the best cameras of all the branches of service, like everything that new came out that we got. And, you know, we, we never really went without. So I'm sorry you chose the wrong branch of service army guy, but air force just is where it's at. Sorry. I'll definitely should put you in contact with him so you can take the mix. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I'm I'm only kidding. Every single branch has its ups and downs and um, all, all ribbing, of branches of service aside, we all serve a greater purpose and yeah. each and every person's service matters. So. Yeah, definitely. Army guy, but I'm happy to joke with you more about it if you like. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think it's great because um, he had this lovely sense of humor as well. Um, and he talked about his friend. Um, he lives in New Zealand. Uh, so he's listened to the podcast and he's give a joke back as well so it's nice to have this camaraderie sort of thing now is is it new zealand that are the kiwis or do they call them limeys what I, or kiwis. is that derogatory is, is it derogatory to say no 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 kiwis is what they call them yeah oh, okay yeah i think they call us the limeys oh are you a limey and that's because of is that because of the ocean crossings and having to keep limes or and scurvy or or where did that even come from? You're probably right. Okay. My dad lives in New Zealand from time to time. He takes contracts. Oh, do you know, it's a lovely place. You know, he keeps asking. It's an open invitation for me to visit, but I can't imagine going all that long way with Charlie on a flight. And I wouldn't I wouldn't leave him home to save my life. So yeah, I guess I'll just have to dream about it. Oh, it's a long... It's a very, very long flight for a human. I mean, I can't imagine what would you, what would you have to do to travel with Charlie that far then? Because would he have to go into quarantine or what? What do they do? Well, I was doing the Veterans Portrait Project. I have been for the last eleven years, and the furthest I went with him was Hawaii. Uh-huh. And Hawaii actually has almost the same policies as going to a foreign country. Um, he needed wow. a, a certain amount of shots days prior and then 
months prior and all of those had to be recorded. I had to submit an application. I was going to Russia with him and I had to get a passport. So he has two chips, a national chip for the USA and then an international chip. Some, every country's policies are different. So you have to read up uh, as to what the guidelines are, but by, I think there's the international guide dogs, international or um, service dogs, international has this, this law where, Service dogs or guide dogs should not be separated from their handler for any length of time. Therefore, they have to be up on all their shots and everything like that, and no quarantines are required. So can he sit on a seat sort of thing? No, no they sit at your feet. Right, okay. I suppose that makes sense in that way. But... Charlie likes to fold up like a taco. You'd be surprised because yeah. you look at him and you're like, well, that dog's got to be 65 pounds. I can't imagine how he's going to fit in that tiny commuter plane. And he just gets on in there and shimmies his little backside up underneath that seat. And it's like, and this, the flight attendants will, will come by. Oftentimes I'll sit on a bulkhead where, you know, you either have the wall in front of you or, yeah. you know, first class is in front of you and there's that curtain gap. And the flight attendants will come by and be like, you're going to need to put your bag up. I'm like, I'm sorry, but he won't go in an overhead bin. <laughs> And then they do a double take because he's been so quiet and he's, you know, so rolled up like a little ball that they yeah. don't even know he's a dog. So pretty funny. It must be quite unusual. Though. What, flying with a dog? Yeah. I don't think they'd see that many people, would they? If you think how many people actually go on a plane every day in and out. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. you know, we did, gosh, um... We, we photographed in 20 some odd states last year, which means, you know, at least four flights per state. What? That's, you know, um, or unless we had more connections. Charlie has more frequent flyer miles than I can imagine. And I wish that the airlines would have allowed him to, to accrue frequent flyer miles because I tell you what, we'd be going on vacation. I would be happy. Well, why should, do you have to pay? Assume you have to pay for him. No. Ah, oh, right. Okay. That's I'll also, we also have a, a, the Americans with Disabilities Act here in the United States. Okay. Means that service dogs ha, are admissible to any public property or any um, business that's open to the public yeah. and public transit. So if I need to go on the bus or the train or an airplane, he is goes free of charge as well as hotels. You know, some, some hotels have no dog um, no dog access. Yeah, they yeah. cannot. They cannot den- deny a, a service dog access yeah. to hotels. No, that's fair comment. It's, it's it's different, isn't it? Well, it's it would be like somebody coming in in a wheelchair and saying, "I'm sorry, we yeah. don't we don't admit wheelchairs in this hotel." Yeah, because let's face it, would you really say that to someone? That people say it to people with service dogs. By Even. law, here in the U. Oh my gosh. That you can't have your dog in here. I'm like, it's not a dog. He's a medical implement. Right. We are so conditioned to think of dogs as pets. Yeah. That we are only now beginning to, again, it's it's only becoming more and more prevalent. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's about educating the public. No, That's no I understand. I mean, obviously, one of the things uh, we keep mentioning here 
It is your veterans project. I mean, obviously, it was the biggest thing I could see, and I think it it's an amazing thing what you're doing. Um, I love these idea projects. Um, where did this idea come from, then? Okay, there was multiple things happening all at once, so multifactorial. Mm-hmm. Basically, when I was in Iraq. I lost some good friends, and after they died, some of the other soldiers came and said, hey, can we get the pictures that you took of them on these recent missions to send back to their families? Mm-hmm. And some of the soldiers I had pictures of, some of them I did not. The thought had occurred to me that, just like myself, every morning I'd wake up and say, okay, today could be the day I die. Mm-hmm. Moving on, let me focus on the work. With that idea, I began to take portraits of the soldiers before we went out on missions in case they didn't come back. And I began to call those the last living pictures. Um, After I came home, uh, the combat injuries that I sustained while in Iraq started the end of my career. And the doctors were talking about not being able to stand for prolonged periods of time, hold anything over five pounds, Basically not be able to take pictures anymore. Yeah. And I got in a really dark place. The military medically retired me. I wasn't a photographer anymore. I wasn't a photojournalist. I wasn't a lot of things. And um, I thought about suicide at that time. And I think what, what made it worse was the veteran community didn't quite accept me either. I was 27 years old, didn't belong in the military, didn't belong in the veteran community, Hmm. Didn't belong in the civilian community. Where did I belong? Yeah. I, spent, uh, I spent a lot of time languishing over that. And when I'd go to the VA to get my health care, a lot of the guys were look, like either catcalling me or telling me how hot I was or asking me if I was there to bring my grandpa or my dad to his doctor's appointment. Hmm. If you were to look at me as a young female, most people don't think of veterans as my face. Like, I'm, I'm yeah. not what people think of when they think of veteran. Hmm. It was frustrating. Example, sorry, I get sidetracked. I'm sorry. Example, I was, at the, I was at the Veterans Administration Hospital, and I had been waiting a couple of hours past my appointment time, and the Red Cross had uh, cookies and soda stands set up. They were giving them out to the veterans who um, had, been, like myself, been waiting a long time. I walked up to grab one and had my hand swatted away and said, those are for the veterans. It's like, um, I think that pretty much sums up my initial experience of being a veteran. Yeah. Um, One, uh, another time I was waiting and an elderly gentleman came and sat next to me, older gentleman, much older, maybe late eighties, early Mm nineties. And I could see him staring at me. And I was just getting really angry. And, you know, I I feel like if I were to be in a movie, this would be the scene where that little cartoon devil pops up on one shoulder and the little angel pops up on the other. And I'm (laughs) I'm in this this, uh, moral dilemma. Do I scream at him and rage at him and, and, and unleash holy hell because of all the pain and anguish I had built up inside of me over the mistreatment of of myself? Or do I resort back to the person I know I am deep inside and, and just ask him, was there something I can help you with? And that's what I did. And 
it was really the window of opportunity he was looking for to share his story. He was a World War II veteran, survived D-Day, liberated a concentration camp, and had been volunteering at the VA hospital for 40 to 60 hours a week just to help out other veterans like myself. He saw I was in emotional turmoil and was trying to reach out <laughs> and, and hand wow. me an olive branch. And what was crazy, and this was my aha moment, and I think we all have these. We just have to be quiet enough to listen to them and hear them. But what Mickey Dorsey, the veteran who was sitting next to me, said or did for me in that moment was made me realize that when I thought everyone was being prejudiced against me, I had developed my own prejudices. Uh, okay. You know what I'm saying? Because yeah. he wasn't there to look at me or degrade me or, you know, he wasn't he wasn't any of those things. Hmm. But I had already, shoot, you know, shoehorned him into that category. Yeah. I was guilty of the same damn thing I was accusing him of. Yeah. Which is awful. And I don't want to be that person. But in that moment, I realized that the veteran community is diverse. It's like women, men, young, old, all walks of life, religion, colors, creeds, um, demographics, mm. financial, um, economic, social, economic. And the United States is a very vast country, and we source from every every corner of this nation. Yeah. How could I, as a journalist, begin to change what we think of as veteran in our minds? Hmm. Could I continue to gripe about the problem without finding a resolution to it? Now, the doctors were telling me I couldn't do photography anymore, but uh, be damned, I began to take my camera <laughs> to the hospital and take portraits and archive stories of the fellow veterans that were in the hospital next to me. And then suddenly I was off the couch. I was not thinking about how terrible my life was or that I didn't have an identity anymore. And I wasn't thinking about the pain. Yeah. Yes, I was in pain, but I still had the camera. And I found that I could continue to serve my veteran country in a unique way. I didn't have a lot to give, but I could do photography. And I set a goal. I would photograph veterans in every state, thinking yeah. that would be a lifetime. And that would keep me from thinking, continually thinking about suicide. And it did, but it only took me 11 years. So um, other projects and my life is as uh, bright or even brighter than it, than it ever has been. That's amazing story. I mean, that's not just I mean, that's not a just... project like me. I'll come up with an idea and think, oh, I'll start shooting that. I don't know. Let's take a picture of a load of bus stops or something. I mean, you know, this has meaning. It's it's a nice thing. It And it sounds like it was recovery for you. It was. With every veteran that I talked to, I felt less alone. And the experiences and the emotions that I was feeling wasn't wholly unique to myself. And I think that we as human beings, we just need to be heard and validated and supported. I think that's what we're all seeking. And that's what I really needed. But I needed it from the community who who would understand. And mm. I tell you what, they they with every with every portrait that I took, it was putting putting that puzzle back together for me. No, that's cool. I mean, when you were um when you've been shooting all this time, though, I know initially you was obviously talking to people. Do you still um, get to know the people and the stories, or or is it you've got too many people to shoot and it's just bang, bang, bang? <laughs> 
Um, I try to schedule myself that I have, I have adequate time to know everybody. Right. I think, I think if I get wrapped up in just getting through the volume of people, then it kind of negates the purpose of the project. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, it, even if I will shoot for the veterans portrait project for the rest of my life, this will be a, a lifelong project. Yeah. So I'm in no rush. You know, if I didn't, <laughs> if I didn't photograph you in Indiana, trust me, I'll be circling back. You know, I'm yeah. not going to stress out about it. Nah, I mean, the thing is, I mean, how big an area are we talking? I mean, are you literally talking of every state then? I went to every state. My, um, like I said, Hawaii was the furthest. I went to Alaska. I went to, I went to two cities in Alaska um, and Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. I'm trying to think, um, Portland, Maine was the furthest northeast for me like that was yeah. and then how far did i go down in um miami tampa st pete florida was the furthest south and then um galveston near galveston houston texas oh yeah charlie shaking um, <laughs> um san diego california oh, oh yeah of course hawaii but anyway all over we went all over that's some serious traveling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I guess equating it um, would be like doing continental, saying you're going to photograph in, in every continental uh, European country. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know, know, uh, a lot of west, west, of west of Russia, you know. <laughs> I mean, okay, incredible. today we're going to Romania, and then we're going to go to Lithuania, and, and then, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's not really something you hear people saying. <laughs> but it was an incredible goal, and I couldn't have a accomplished it without so many people supporting me. And um, I think that that's, that's the most rewarding part of it, is knowing that you're doing something good. Other people believe in you enough yeah. to whether they're throwing some skin in the game and helping you get to the next state, or they're putting they're open house for you and you you and your crew are spending the night you know and they're making you breakfast the next morning like that's, uh, that's it really lovely. brought the community together it was pretty great it's yeah. great it's great no that's what that's i mean talking of um physically shooting then so have you been able to gradually shoot for longer periods or is your disabilities that's where charlie time. helps no i mean it was wearing me down and i was hmm. in a lot of pain and i was just kind of pushing through it and my one my one assistant desla i like to call her my my colleague because i feel like somehow assistant is almost saying she's less than and she's an incredibly talented photographer in her own right Hi. anyway Desla, my work colleague, um, every day after a shoot, she would grab the pointy part of her elbow and shove it into the corner of my neck because I would have be having so many muscle spasms that I could hardly lift my arm. Like, it was that that bad. But Charlie and I have modified one of his tasks so that he supports the weight of my camera. And what I'll do is I'll ne I'll kneel down on a gardening pad, you know, just a piece of foam, maybe uh -huh. two a piece of foam. And then Charlie will center himself standing in front of me and I will brace my elbows on his shoulder and his hips and he'll carry the weight of my camera so that I can con continue to shoot longer. This is amazing stuff. Um, I've, 
I've never known it like it. So it's so interesting to me that um, despite anything, you can still work. I think it's amazing. I think we tend to believe in the barriers that people put in front of us and hmm. won't even try to leap the hurdle. Hmm. When you have an open mind and you can just adapt to your new normal, then then nothing is impossible. Yeah. No, that's cool. Have you noticed um, any gear that's really helped you, though? Because obviously, if you're just using a large full-frame DSLR, we know mm-hmm. we all know how heavy they are. Have uh-huh. you considered mirrorless? Is there anything that's helped you in that sense? I have two mirrorless cameras, a Z6 and a Z7. Okay. And I shoot with um, eight, 850, Nikon D850s right now. Right. And the one thing I did find that was helpful was Spider Holster's um, hip. Um, sorry, brain trauma moment. I'm trying to think of the hip holster. Wow, that was tough. Sometimes <laughs> words words evade me. Um, and, and you know, words being my life, it's often really frustrating. Anyway, the Spider Holster uh, has taken literally the pain out of my neck instead of carrying the weight, like having a camera on one shoulder or around my neck and then my, my other camera, because I shoot with two cameras at a time, okay. there, so I don't have to switch lenses out, um, having just be able to pop it right on my hip and the holster is saved, saved everything. It's everything. Spider holster, y'all. Check it out. No, that's cool. I know a few people use similar things. Mm-hmm. Um, but the mirrorless are a lot lighter. Hmm. Um, as they begin to grow the lens selection, because the you know the Z series lenses are still being released, mm-hmm. you, you know I still use my F mount with adapters on my mirrorless. Right. Um, yeah, so that ha- that hasn't really um, changed much yet, but it will. So that's probably a future thing for you, then you think? Absolutely. Yeah, because that I mean, should save you a lot of weight. It is, and I, I think they'll, they're going to continue to improve this technology. I mean, it's already it's already really fantastic, which blows my mind. But I think it's kind of like, remember, um, gosh, 18 years ago, I had a Motorola flip phone, and that yep. thing was the bomb. It was the tip of the spear technology, and now mm-hmm. you look at it and you're like, jitterbug, you know, the jitterbug with the huge numbers for your grandma? Yeah. That's what I think of when I think of a Motorola flip phone. Mm. But, you know, cameras are evolving exponentially um, faster than they were in film days. So it's going to be extraordinary to see where we're at five years from now. Oh, that's it. You you can't imagine. I mean, you look at um, what Facebook and Instagram keep doing, all these little tweaks here and then. Mm -hmm. With your phones, you know, who, who, who would have thought of, twin lenses three lenses i mean it's <laughs> that's crazy um yeah i got a new iphone the other day because i totally shattered the glass on both sides of my old iphone oh. i had the <laughs> the iphone x oh my gosh my husband says you want you want to test technology send it to stacy she'll kill it <laughs> um yeah anyway so i was forced to get a new phone but when i got it i was like well this thing has how many cameras on it and yeah. a flash what the hey anyway but you can understand that, why people are doing like projects on the iPhone now. 
Yes. Um, in, and, you know, this is the most accessible camera. But I mm. will say, comparatively, and um, I have a farm. It's about 40 acres. On any wow. given day, I keep a camera in, in my little ATV vehicle, my all-terrain vehicle. And nothing compares, like, when I look at photos I shot with an iPhone versus what, when I grab my camera and I make the effort to actually, gra- you know, make some good pictures. There's no, there's no comparison in my mind between the quality and I think too, when I actually get a camera in my hands, my mentality switches as well because now I've genuinely committed to making pictures because the camera's in my hand. I hope that makes sense too. It's for me, it's transformative. It changes my mindset. I'm exactly the same. When I'm with my kids, get my mobile out, bang, bang, bang. No effort, because that's all we want. The minute I take my camera, oh, yes. Um, And especially because I shoot film. So, like, even tonight, we went to our local park, uh, and I took my film camera. I ain't shooting loads of photos. That cost me money. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have to really time it well. And uh, I was doing, um, trying to get them on the swing at the same time. And it's like trying to get the focal plane for swinging. I've never been able to do it. Are there any tips? <laughs> yes. Um, my suggestion there, put your camera on a tripod. Mm-hmm. I, and, and the thing is, I don't. I rarely ever use tripods. So this would be the one instance where I would put your camera on a tripod. And then what you're going to do is push one of your daughters, like swing her and see at what point will you be photographing her as she comes into, into that compositional position you want her. Yeah. Then what you're going to do is draw an invisible line straight down and mark an X in the dirt where she's going to be coming into the focal plane. Set your camera to manual focus and focus on that X. Then you wait until you see both of them coming into that focal plane and then shoot. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, mark the floor. Yeah, that's easy. There's loads of branches and leaves and stuff about. Thank you. I'll try that. Try it. <laughs> Are you shooting film? Yes. Is that what's happening? Yeah. 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 So your latitudes are, you know. Yeah, I think that would be the. But that's where I would start. That, yeah. that technique. It's all about balancing. I mean, in theory, you could just use your aperture ring to read your distance as well, I suppose, because that'll roughly tell you focal length, won't it? Um, yeah, but you're still going to run into... Um, yeah, you might still run into some focus, some focus, focusing, soft focus problems. Oh, yeah, because you're still going to be close. Because mm-hmm. I'm only, you know, only shooting fifty mil, so mm-hmm. it's not like it's not like I'm going to take a big lens and stand far enough back not to worry about these things. But mm-hmm. yeah, because I've I've done a few moving shots. I've done a few when they've been on um, um, a scooter, and I've followed them. And it's a little bit easier because you tend to go straight on scooters, so I can just slowly adjust my. Uh, aperture and I just get it right on all the focus in it. Uh, I managed to mm-hmm. get a couple, but they're certainly not sharp, sharp sort of thing. But... Mm-hmm. 
There we go. It's all practice, isn't it? Well, um, having experience on on fast moving targets, if you can <laughs> study where the action is coming to, if you're instead of chasing it and um, you pre-focus and let it come and let the action come through you or to you, that's a lot easier um, in the end. Yeah, I think you've had the experience, haven't you? Yes. Just slightly. <laughs> I mean, it must be so different shooting people, you know, fellow soldiers. And um, one of the shots I really liked as well was like, um, it'd be like a sunset with a silhouette of a load of people loading up like a big like Hercules and you just mm-hmm. are walking up the uh, ramp. Mm-hmm. I quite like stuff like that. Thank you. Yes, I took that picture in June of 2003. And that was the actually that was the the tail of a C-17 cargo aircraft yeah. on yeah. the um, the tarmac of the Baghdad International Airport. An army soldier had been hit by a roadside bomb, and they f- they flew him in via helicopter to catch the last flight out that morning so he could get to Germany for surgery. So that's him being loaded. Ah, right, okay. So there's sentimental, emotional stuff, even with things like that. Every picture for me has a, has a whole story behind it, and there's not enough time in the day, frankly, to, <laughs> to really drill down on every one of them. But, yeah, I, I ran out down i only had just a few seconds to get the picture because the engines were already running um and i I laid down to get the separation underneath the the humvee that had backed up to the the cargo aircraft and um got a couple of shots and then ran right back and we took off right after Uh, i see you were on it with them okay yep right it's it's so interesting to hear you know um the different things you have to shot shoot as a uh, when you're in the forces and um, uh, the other guy in Tudu saying it, it's very much, uh, it's quite the opposite, he said, of like civilian photography. Um, he says you're pretty much told where to go um, and when to shoot. Uh, that was sort of his experience. It's, mm. You need to be out on the field, go now. Um, <laughs> well, I think we had some autonomy Mm-hmm. Um, from from a U.S. forces standpoint, they would say, "Okay, your area of operation." My let's use my last deployment for example. Mm-hmm. Um, they said, "Your your area of operation is Diyala Province." We were dropped out in Diyala Province and seeking out the stories with all the army units. They didn't know us from Adam, so we had to go make the introductions and um, find the stories. It was um, definitely different so we were generating our our own ideas and stories and transmitting pictures back unlike civilian journalists so we had a couple of civilian journalists from new york times and newsweek and um uh time magazine when when all of these were still in print (laughs) um uh but they they would come in and they'd stay for a couple days and then they'd leave well we were there and we were living with the we were soldiers Hmm. we were living with them and so our, our environment never changed, but that's where our biggest difference was. We carried a gun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Plus, Plus, it was normal, normal for you as well, isn't well, it? So, so I think I as think a photojournalist, it would have been an assignment or a project, wouldn't it? Whereas mm-hmm. you, it's just everyday life as well. So do you think your fellow soldiers 
just treat you exactly the same? Not initially, because we were outsiders. Right. You know, I had my video partner was also a woman. Okay. And to show up on a base where it's ninety nine point nine percent men, um, it's a little jarring. Yeah. And being Air Force and then being Army, that as you know from your past interview, the um, the struggle is real. Yeah. <laughs> convincing oh. people that your act your aptitude is up up to par, and when you go into a, a, a strange unit and you say, "Hey, we're going to be on this mission with you." How the hell do they know what your training level is, what your aptitude and capabilities are, and mm-hmm. can you be trustworthy? We're not talking about flipping burgers at a burger joint. Yeah. Okay, you go back and you work the fryer and you work the register. Nobody's going to lose their life. Yeah. We're talking about freaking combat when somebody is relying on you to make sure they don't get shot from the back. Hmm. That's a, a lot to ask of a perfect stranger. So I'm never demanded respect i always i always earned it i said hey i know you don't know us let us go on one small mission with you and we'll we'll either earn your trust or you'll completely say you're not welcome anymore Hmm. obviously i got through the deployment so things went okay (laughs) (laughs) multiple times yeah yeah there must there must have been some um fascinating shots sometimes so i mean I can't imagine you being out in the field and thinking about taking the picture when things are happening around you. Where, where does your soldier brain switch off to go to your photographer brain sort of thing? Mm-hmm. I remember when I was first training to be a combat photographer, I asked a, a, a Korean War veteran, how do you know when you put your your gun down and you put your camera up? And he said, well, every individual has a threshold and it's all about the pucker factor. Okay. How, how tight will your anus get before you, you figure you can't take pictures anymore and oh, you feel right. like you need to defend yourself? That's the pucker factor. <laughs> um, I, can, I can count on my two hands how many times I actually put my camera down and had to get a gun. Uh, initially I used to carry a long rifle, but then I gave it up because my job was to be a photographer not, not, I was to document infantry, not be part of them. Yeah. And, um, I figured if it really came down to getting that nasty, there would be plenty of rifles around for me to grab. And that was always the case. Um, I did always have a, a sidearm, just a, a pistol on me, but, um, mm-hmm. but anyway, yeah, I would also say the camera itself is like blinders through a racehorse. Mm-hmm. You put blinders or blinkers on a horse so that they do not get distracted and they focus solely on moving away and and the threat. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the camera, whatever millimeter lens I had on that day, that's solely where my focus stayed. Okay. And you know, if bombs were going off to my left or right, or if if there was a sniper on the rooftop, or if there was a gunner behind me, I would never see it coming. Hmm. So every day I woke up and I said, okay, today might be my last day. And Hmm. I had to resign to, I had to resign my fate to that so that I could focus on just taking pictures. I know it sounds insane. 
Yeah. But that was how... Well, then, you know, that was um, your job as well, wasn't it? You, you know, people have to remember it, it's still a job as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, you have to do as you call it at the end of the day, don't you? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, my job was to take pictures. And if I if I came back from a mission without them, then what the heck were they paying me for? Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah. And it doesn't matter what, what role you'd be doing. It's the same, you know, soldier didn't do his job, he was in infantry or whatever. Yeah, it's, you, you've got to do it. And it's the same in any walk of life, isn't it? Um, my boss will say the same thing to me. Um, you're here for eight and a half hours a day. If you don't work for eight and a half hours, you make a time up. Uh, you know, there's all these things. That's what the real world's about, isn't it? We have to rely on people to do stuff. That's yeah. what it's all about. Um, I mean, obviously your record stands for what it is. Um, you know, it's amazing. You know, you've got your bronze star and your Air Force commendation. I mean, that's fantastic. It really is. Um, the final thing I wanted to ask you was... Um, Obviously, you're doing printed work for your veterans as well. Uh, and I noticed you were um, uh, Ilford Master. Yes. I mean, how does that happen? Because to me, like, Ilford is a British company. I, I don't know how well-known it is in other countries, you say. Oh, my gosh. Ilford's huge here in the USA. Oh, okay, cool. Um, and I would, I would argue that, I mean, next, Ilford stands right up there for me with any other big paper producing company, whether that's Hannah Mule or um, yeah. Epson, et cetera. Um, oh. And, and from my relationship with Ilford actually started um, with a gal who was, um, her name is Brenda Hipshire. She recognized um, what I was doing with the veterans portrait project. And like I said, the project would not be what it, what it has become without so much support. And Brenda was part of that. And Ilford really stepped up and said, Hey, we, we, the veteran or we Ilford want to support the veterans portrait project. What can we do? And I said, well, we want to have these, these regional and local exhibitions where we print the veterans portrait and we have it in a showcase for one night only and we invite the community and the veterans to come in and have a dialogue. Hmm. And so Ilford um, took on so many of these um, exhibitions and we had them in, oh my gosh, like 15 different states across the country. Wow. And to go a step further, Ilford also printed a show that's on permanent exhibition for the Women in Military Service Memorial at Arlington National Cemetery, which is our big military cemetery in Washington, yeah. D.C. Yeah. Um, and we had another show at the National Portrait Gallery uh, at the Smithsonian. So it's my relationship with them. I feel like I get so much more out of it. I know they call me the master, but but frankly... Um, it takes true artistry to create something like the paper that they do to bring your photographs to life. And um, I feel extremely humbled that they would want me to be part of uh, or associated with their particular brand. 
Mm, that's interesting. I think the fabulous people. Yes. We, we, you know, really hold them high respect over here for their dark room training. And I don't think the dark room would be what it is without Ilford because we all use their paper. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, HP5 is such a common film. Um, all the press photographers, you know, everyone would have used this in Ilford paper. There was Ilford master dark room guys that. I think over the years, obviously, their knowledge is flushed down to everybody. And, you know, I've interviewed an Ilford Dark Room master and the fantastic knowledge. Um, so to be behind a good brand like that, um, yeah, I can understand why you like that, Stacey. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I think for me, it's um, – if I'm going to be brand loyal mm-hmm. – as brand loyal as I am to say Nikon or, or Ilford, it, it's, it's not that just the, the actual like camera or the paper has to be on like the best, but the Mm. people you're associating yourself with too, that they genuinely care about the art you're creating and that the folks at Ilford are just as invested in me as I am in their product. So, I, I never look at these ambassadorships as as something where, oh, yeah, I'm just going to say I like Ilford because, you know, they mm. give me things. No, I genuinely believe in 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 their paper and, and their products, but I also really appreciate the support that comes along with it. And um, mm. the same goes for Nikon and, and um, yeah, any other program I'm associated with including America's Vet Dogs, who Charlie is associated with, too. <laughs> I'm constantly well, fundraising for them, and um, I can't give back to them enough either. So, No, that's lovely to hear. I think it's a very important thing, and it's nice that someone like yourself saying the same things because, um, like for a lot of amateurs, you know, the chances of getting spotted or sponsored are minimal because what can you offer these people? But... Um, when you hear them doing great things, and there's been some good videos, um, Cine Stills, a, a brand, um, makes film. They've been doing some great YouTube uh, about people, and it's like, that's really good because it means you're getting involved with people. You're not just sell, 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 support the industry. It's a two-way right. thing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and I think there's something more to letting – letting that relationship in and when you come from a genuine place that mm. that's where it's meaningful. I, I, mm. I appreciate that Nikon recognizes me as one of their ambassadors. Um, mm. but that wasn't something I was actively seeking. I was just doing my thing and saying, Hey Nikon, thanks for the support. Mm. Hey Nikon, this camera rocks. And I genuinely mean it. Um, mm. and, and the same goes for, you know, the Ilford paper that I print my work on, mm. um, all, all of these things. And I, I would encourage anybody who's out there, you know, just be true to yourself and, and true to what you're doing and other people will believe in it, believe in you and believe in the work you're doing. And I think when you set all of the other agendas aside, mm. it really comes down to the art that you're creating and why you're doing it. Yeah. That really matters. Yeah, 
that's really that's nice. Really it, it's something, it's something um, so, many so many people say to me, say to me uh, and it's something it's I really do take on board. So um, for me, uh, these interviews are a learning experience, and I think I gain a little bit of knowledge off you all. Well, I, I just just for full transparency, I don't know everything. So take what I say <laughs> as a grain of salt. But uh, this has just been my experiences. So, but then that's what everyone knows. I don't think anyone can say anything different about you and your life, isn't it? Yeah. And and that's the main thing. So we are through the uh, formal part of the interview, Stacey, and um, what I love to do with my guests is move them into my silly and infamous random questions. Okay. So are you prepared? Sure, let's do this. So question one. I had to add some that are uh, sensible for your persona as well. So here we go. They say cats always land on their feet. So why don't dogs? I think dogs... So cats always land on their feet because they're agile. Uh And I think dogs are a little more clunky, uh, Hmm. which is probably why. Yeah. So they end up with a broken feet and uh, accidents and stuff, yeah. No, that's cool. I understand that one. Um, next one. MySpace, Twitter, Facebook. <laughs> what's next? Well, I think we are we are in the next part already with Zoom meetings. Okay. But I think that will probably evolve. You know, we do Facebook Live and we do Instagram Live. Mm. There will be some iteration next i mean i think tiktok wasn't it um i think there will be something where we're we are all internationally we're globally doing things simultaneously together live that will be the next thing yeah i think all we're missing is probably amazing broadband all the time Yes, and I think I think with the help of some billionaires who are trying to get satellites in the sky, that even the most far reaches of the globe will eventually have connectivity, we hope. Next question for you. Some game shows allow you to phone a friend. Mm-hmm. What would anyone call you for? <laughs> oh, God. Because everyone's got something arbitrary facts. All right. That, that's you. You're the arbitrary fat person, I am. I I am full of useless quotes, and uh, um, I, I can I, I can actually say a lot of song lyrics. I don't know. I'm not. I don't have an eidetic memory, but if yeah. I heard a song once, I could probably repeat it. Wow, that's a good skill to have. Not really. I wish no. I could read a book and remember it, but I can't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> fair enough. No. Each to, yeah, we have these things, don't we? Um, your next one. A new strain of COVID has come to light and it uh-huh. gives everybody beehive hairstyles. What would you do? 
I think I would embrace the beehive. I mean, I've already got a pretty high do. It's almost a pompadour itself. So I'm, <laughs> I'm just like two steps away from a beehive. And, and frankly, I'd like to see some people in beehives. I think that would shake it up a little bit. It'd be an interesting strain anyway, wouldn't it? So oh, that's cool. Um, here's your horror one. You come home and find a spider ironing, a shark washing up, and an octopus playing your guitar. Which one would scare you the most? Um, probably a shark. Yeah? You don't like sharks? Um, from a very young age... I would always, when we go out to the ocean, I would think a shark was going to get my legs because I'd oh. seen Jaws when I was really little. And that, <laughs> and unfortunately for great whites, I now have a lifelong fear of sharks. That's something I understand. I used to be exactly so I watched Jaws. I had the nightmares. Never set a foot out my um, bed at night because he mm. was there. Mm -hmm. It's amazing what these films can do to you. Yes, so disturbing. I watched Jaws and The Exorcist when I was way too young. Oh, yeah. Mine was uh, um, Twilight Zone and I think Friday the 13th. Yeah, you see the gore? Mm -hmm. The gore style horrors I was never really into. Um, like yeah. Hellraiser, Chainsaw Massacre, all yeah. of that. Yeah. But I liked paranormal, paranormal horrors. Poltergeist? was the bomb and oh, God. you know i could watch exorcist over and over again but it still freaked me out i would watch it and then like have to sleep with the lights on for a week but oh do you know what? i i won't watch horror still to this day mm -hmm. it it's too much i just i think i've always said it, i don't really have uh, i'm not a really imaginative artist artistic person um but actually, horror just does something to me. Uh, and if I was in my house by myself, I would see things and, I don't know, <laughs> it's terrible. I think I think it does that to a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. But some of that stupid, like I used to go jogging um, through woods and like an old mine. Uh, I do it at night. You know, it, it'd be dark as out. I would never, That's ever it. be scared. Don't get robbed or murdered. Careful. Yeah, we were young and stupid. Wow. That was, that was the 90s. Well, I mean, I guess I used to play on a, um, a power hub box. That used to be the, the place to, like... It was the home base for tag and things like that when I was a kid. Oh, uh, yeah. Probably one of the most dangerous places you could yeah. hang out, but... You know, we do stupid things. We don't really know what that is. You know, mom or dad says, don't touch the burner. It's hot. And you're like, all right, touch it. Yeah. Yeah. It's one thing do. about being a parent. You, you sort of see your parents sometimes and think, oh, God, they told me this <laughs> stuff. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's awful. Awful, honestly. Well, anyway, thank you so much for going through those. Uh, that was good fun. Thanks for having me. It's nice no, chatting it's been, with you. No, it's been great to have you. Um, the only uh, last couple of things we need to do, um, can we tell everybody where to check you out online, etc.? 
Yeah, if you're out and about on the interweb, you can find me at stacypearsall.com. And I've also got my social media links on there. And you can check out the Veterans Portrait Project. That's S-T-A-C-Y-P-E-A-R-S-A-L-L.com. And you can also hear me pontificate about life every week um, with my podcast, which is called Everything Stacy. And if you want to check that out, it's everythingstacy.com. Great stuff. Thank you for that. I'll obviously put the links in the show notes for you on my website. Um, and the final thing, Stacey, is I do this pay it forward scheme. Um, so is there anybody you can put me in touch with that you think can make an interesting guest? Oh, my gosh. Uh, do you have enough time? Because there's quite a few people. <laughs> I know. This is the thing. Everyone says it's so hard. Now, <laughs> my my biggest thing is I like variety because I think it keeps mm-hmm. it interesting. Mm-hmm. So anything niche would be fantastic. Okay. Well, I think, do you want to stick with women? I think it's a great thing. The more women, um, LGBT, well, I... everything really helps, to be honest. Cause... Excellent. Um, well, there's a couple of women that come to mind. Um, mm-hmm. One particular that I think is really, really fantastic, um, her name's Lisa Zunzanyika. Um, you know, right now, I think it's important that we continue to push um, and bring forward the voices of women of color here in my country, particularly. Yeah. And um, she's been doing this wonderful project about women of color in the Atlanta, Georgia area. Okay. She and I were in the service together, and she was the first black female photojournalist in the Air Force. Wow. Um, pretty extraordinary woman. Um, but that said, I do know several other women out there. Uh, there's uh, my fellow Nikon ambassador, Sharmi um, Pena. She lives um, up in New England and does weddings, and she's a wedding photographer. So that's a whole other genre. You know, somebody <laughs> asked me, would I ever shoot weddings? I'm like, no, I've already been to combat. I don't want to do that over again. Um, so bless their hearts to anybody who wants to do weddings. Um, but anyway, I'd be happy to link you up with so many women um, who are doing really great work out there and, and interesting work. No, that's great, yeah. So, yeah, thank you so much. Um, please thank Charlie and Pickles for me. <laughs> They've been very I will. good. Good <laughs> It's dinner time, so they're humming at me even even more loudly. You can hear them oh, shaking okay. around. They said, get off, get off your butt, Mom, and feed us. <laughs> no, I really do appreciate your time. Um, it's been really nice speaking to you, and um, keep with that project. You take care. <laughs> Bye.